but it's curiosity as to where we are, what we are. Existence, the physical universe, is basically playful. Welcome to the Curious Humans podcast. I'm your host, Johnny Miller. Hello, Curious Humans. This is an amazing conversation with executive coach Brett Kistler. He's an entrepreneur and executive coach who spent much of his life traveling the world as an extreme sports athlete, whilst also building a remote software company. Brett also hosts the Art of Accomplishment podcast with Joe Hudson, who was also a previous guest on this podcast. We unpack base jumping and wingsuit jumping acted as a hard reboot on his mind and how he uses practices for emotional inquiry to stay alive in these extremely risky situations. This episode of Curious Humans is brought to you by the one and only Nervous System Mastery. This is my five-week bootcamp that's designed to equip you with evidence-backed protocols for cultivating calm and emotional regulation. Our third cohort is running in spring, and applications are open right now until April 1st. My guess is that if this conversation with Brett resonates, then you'd be a really good fit for our upcoming cohort. And this curriculum represents my attempt to distill pretty much everything that I've learned in recent years about how to create the conditions for our nervous systems flourishing. Previous students have shared how taking part not only improved their sleep and the quality of their relationships, but all of them to tap into deeper states of joy, clarity, and confidence. We've had over 400 students complete this training already, and many have said it's been the most impactful thing they've ever done for their personal growth. So if you're intrigued, you can find more details and apply to join this upcoming cohort at nsmastery.com. Okay. Without further ado, please enjoy this beautiful conversation with Brett Kistler. Welcome to the Curious Humans podcast, Brett. Hello. How's it going, Johnny? Good. It's it's really great to have you here. How are you feeling in this moment in three words? How am I feeling right now in three words? Uh, hmm, well, excited, curious, and... Okay, I'm going to be a dick here. Human. <laughs> Just tie that right back into your, uh, to your whole thing. Uh, yeah. I was wondering if you were going to, if you, you were going to say vulnerable, Im- impartial, and empathetic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll find out throughout the course of this episode how true those are right now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh cool well i um i think this conversation is going to go in in really a ton of different directions but i'd love to start by asking uh were you exceptionally curious as a child and if so could you tell me something that you were curious about hmm it's it's hard to say whether i was exceptionally curious i think curiosity is just innate in any children any child so with an N of one of my own experience, I was definitely very curious and I can't make any statements to how exceptional that was. I did have it reflected back to me that like, yeah, you're so curious. And I think that that helped encourage that. Uh, though, hmm. you know, I, I don't know to what extent that was just something that people liked and they reflected back and reinforced, uh, and if, mm-hmm. if I had gotten feedback that I wasn't very curious, that if I would have just te- adopted a identity of not the curious one (laughs) 
So yeah, I, I did. I did mm. grow up feeling curious. Uh, that is true. Uh, can't state to to what exceptionality that might be, or not. Huh. And are, are there any stories or like books that you read as a kid that come to mind that really resonated? Yeah. Well, I I read a lot of books as a kid. I remember. I guess maybe the story of as I was learning to read has some curiosity in it. So I'm just going to go to that rather than any particular book. Uh, I remember mm. I had, I had an older brother who's six years older than me. So my first memory of reading or something related to reading was when I was hanging out, I was really young way before reading age and I was hanging out next to my brother and he he was reading and I was looking at the words and I wasn't able to like understand what was going on, but he was reading and then he would read out loud occasionally. And I put my hand on his like Adam's apple on his throat and like just feel the vibration of his voice while he was reading. And mm. that's just like the, the first memory I have. And some like for some reason that memory comes up not infrequently. I don't know what kind of things trigger it. This huh. question triggered the memory, but um, yeah, the what I what I kind of pull out of that memory is that I in that moment had this experience of there's something that I don't know how to do yet. There's somebody here who knows how to do it, and it felt okay that I didn't know how, and it also felt okay that I could explore my curiosity through a lot of different ways, like putting my hand on his voice box and like listening to him talk. Hmm. Um, yeah. So that, that's a memory that comes up. And I think that maybe that is somewhat illustrative of my, of my, or perhaps many children's, you know, learning and curiosity process. Sort of like hmm. I, I didn't, I didn't know how to read the words. So rather than, rather than like beat myself in the head, trying to read the words, I was just finding what else I was curious about. Yeah. And I, I know there's something beautiful about like, it's like a beautifully innocent way to respond to not knowing is to like feel another way in which the words are being shared or almost tuning into a different, yeah, different sense, I guess. Um, interesting. Yeah. I love that. Um, well, I, I don't, uh, I don't know the full backstory here, but I'm curious what were some pivotal moments for you maybe in your in your teenage years or your 20s that led you to become a founder of a company the um executive coach kind of work doing the work that, that you're doing today what are any any moments or memories that come to mind yeah yeah it depends on how how long winded we want to get here with the with the story uh as far as becoming a founder uh just very early on i just didn't want to work for somebody so, you know, I worked at Wendy's and I didn't have a very great experience in, you know, in, in food service. Largely, there was just a lot going on in, in that workplace that was not healthy. Um, you know, there was, you know, there was drugs, there was hazing, there was just not, uh, not a good situation. Um, and I saw a lot of what my dad experienced in his, his work. He was he was in management in a you know corporate environment and i just kind of grew up around a lot of experience of like well you're just kind of get the shit's going to roll down on you you don't want to have somebody else be your boss 
or else you're going to end up in that kind of situation. And uh, so I just kind of very early on decided I wanted to work for myself. And as far as some early books that, since you asked about books that kind of influenced me, I remember mm-hmm. when I was like maybe 12 or 13 reading Rich Dad, Poor Dad, which is sort of like a basic one-on-ones on here's some different ways to think about money than you might've previous thought, previously thought of. And when I was like 12 or 13, that was, you know, that was a pretty big eye opener for me. Cause I hadn't actually explored like, Oh yeah. What happens if there's you read that pretty early? That's a, that's a, yeah. That's a young age to be reading that. <laughs> yeah. 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 And I think I benefited from having, having role models around me. Like I think my, my grandpa had read a book called the millionaire next door and he recommended it and I read it and it was basically just about people who you wouldn't expect have, uh, wouldn't expect to be millionaires, but they've actually just done it through, uh, making smart choices, living under their means, not buying the nice car. And they've just managed to become relatively financially secure. And I was like, well, that's interesting. I, d- I thought you had to be, be, you know, some kind of big time success story to reach some kind of financial security. So I, I lived in this story of like financial security is possible. And if I get it, then I'll be safe, which is a story that eventually had to fall mm-hmm. away later on. But that's something that had me, <laughs> that started me down this path of like, I want to be independent. I want to be in charge of my own life. I want, I would, I would rather take a lot of risks and be what I determined free than have a bunch of my needs met and be stuck in a local optimum and be afraid to take risks. And since I was young, it was, it was relatively, uh, like relatively low risk to do that. I didn't have children or mortgage or anything when I started to, to, to do that. But I, I did have, um, I did have no clue. <laughs> I had no idea how to do anything. So yeah, curiosity was really the only thing that, uh, mm. the, the, the primary thing I had curiosity and, uh, and some love and connections, uh, support. Mm. Chance yeah. to iterate and experiment. So at what point? Yeah, at what point in building your business and being the CEO and founder did the idea of becoming a coach kind of come online? What was the what was the journey there? Yeah, well, that that came far far later. Um, to, to fill in some more of the story. So like becoming a coach is something that's becoming at least, at least an executive coach is something that has come up for me in the past several years. Um, much more after, uh, after moving out to the Bay and getting much more involved in, in, um, in this, in the kind of work that I'm involved in now in the art of accomplishment podcast with Joe, um, and in, in that form of work. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for a, a long time, the kind of coaching, that I would have, that I did was, uh, in air sports. So I would be, uh, mm. so I don't know to what extent you have any context on that part of my history, but for 15 years after, after high school, I, I didn't go to college. I moved to Mexico where I could live really cheap and work remotely. And I was like, I read the four hour work week from Tim Ferriss while I was in Mexico. And I was like, Oh, this is perfect. This is exactly what I've been like what I want to do. This is what I am doing. So now I feel more validated and it's a thing. Great. And, uh, so I was like, okay, I want to live a life where I am traveling the world. I want to live a life where I'm skydiving and I'm base jumping and I'm flying wingsuits and 
I'm funding it by myself, not as a instructor in those sports, because then I'm kind of stuck in the, the treadmill was this, you know, that's what I was believing at the time. I didn't want to be in a treadmill of like working in the industry that I loved and then having the soul sucked out of it. So I was like, I want to keep making money by being a web developer, which is what I was doing at the time. Um, and I want to travel and, and jump and live all kinds of different places and learn all the languages and become, you know, multicultural kind of, uh, yeah, you know, citizen of the world kind of thing. And so I did that for about 15 years and eventually my, my journey brought me to San Francisco. Uh, and there's, there's a lot that I could get into on that journey, but just kind of trying to answer your question, uh, as far as becoming an executive coach, that became something mm. that much more recently in the past, in the past several years has become something that I've been doing, uh, and largely from being like becoming much more interested in formal formalizing this like exploration of self that I've been doing for my entire life in different realms, mm -hmm. but then just being like, this is actually what is fun for me. It, used to be fun for me to explore myself in the context of say climbing mountains and jumping off of them and feeling what came up for me. But now there's just even more of just what is the essence of self-exploration and how can I develop that as a skill that's independent of whether it's, whether it's about me running a business or whether it's about me traveling or whether it's about learning a language or moving to a new country with no contacts and no language. Um, and then how do I, how do I sharpen that capacity and then also be able to work with others so that they develop that capacity more sharply in themselves? Yeah. Um, wow. There's, I actually really do want to dig into that, that journey of 15 years. And there are many parallels between kind of my experience in, in my twenties as well. I initially, um, knew I didn't want to get a job. I've went to Morocco to work as a surf instructor mm -hmm. for like six months and quickly realized that that did suck the life out of it. <laughs> I was like, okay, not, not this. And then it doesn't have to, but it, it, yeah, it kind can. of started a, started a, it, it, it did yeah. for me. Yeah. It definitely did for me. Um, at least to some extent. And then pursuing kind of the startup world through travel, like building a travel company and living in Morocco and Bali and these, these places while we were building that, that company. Um, and, and for me, at least there was this like both like rejection of the default path in, in some ways. Yeah. And, and that I was kind of running, running from a world, which many of my friends and, and certainly parents had kind of gone into that I was afraid of in a way, like I didn't, I was afraid of being 40 or 50 in this like nine to five job. It just it filled me with fear, the thought of that, um, and then that later, that kind of, I, I think about it as like the spirit of adventure in the outer world. And for me, it was surfing, kind of surfing big waves in different places that then kind of pivoted towards being adventurous and curious about the internal landscape, um, kind of four or five years ago. So I feel like there's an interesting parallel and, and I'm curious to kind of dig into more of the, the base jumping side of things. Yeah. Um, I've never done. I've never done base jumping, but I've seen many, I, I'm a climber and I've seen many videos of people in, in wingsuits and, and I'd love to maybe for listeners who haven't, you know, they're not familiar with it. Like what does it involve and how did you get into base jumping and, and wingsuit jumping? Yeah. Yeah. So kind of what it involves just for people who might not have any context is wingsuits are the flying squirrel suits. You 
you basically put on a suit with wings that connect between your arms and your legs, and then you can jump out of a plane or off of a cliff. Uh, if you jump out of an aircraft, it's called skydiving. With a wingsuit, it's wingsuit skydiving. And if you jump off of some fixed object that's connected to the earth, like a really tall building or a cliff or a bridge, then it's called base jumping, which stands for building antenna span earth, which is a somewhat arbitrary kind of four categories of fixed objects oh. objects you might jump off of. So that's, that's what that is. And you jump with a parachute. Uh, you open your parachute at the end of the flight. People often ask that question. Um, and uh, that's a very, very important part of the flight, making sure that you have ample altitude <laughs> and space to deploy a parachute and land it safely, and not in a forest or pile of rocks. And so kind of what brought me into that was you know, the first the first exposure that I had is that when I was 13, I was helping helping a neighbor move, like load some stuff into their container, and they were like moving to Taiwan to be a missionary or something. And some of their friends were helping them. And one of them had just gotten a skydiving license. And I was like, whoa, a skydiving license. You can like do that and get a license. I thought it was just a thing you saw on TV. I didn't know you could actually do it. And so he he told me, he's like, yeah, there's a place a couple of, like an hour away. The phone number was like 1-800-TLC-JUMP or something. And I remembered that number. And he, he told me kind of the economics of it. And I was like, that actually doesn't sound as expensive as I thought it's similar to if I were to buy like a decent motorcycle, I could learn to skydive and buy gear at that time. I don't know how the things relate now, but probably not that differently. Things are a bit more expensive, but, um, but I was just like, Whoa, that's a thing I could do. And this was when I was 13. So I couldn't do it yet. And I just remember, remembered that phone number mm -hmm. until I turned 18. Mm -hmm. And then I called and came in and made a skydive and they had a really good deal if you did multiple ones on the first day. So I did the multiple ones for the good deal and spent like all of my money. And then I was, I was hooked. Um, yeah, I went home. I had a VHS tape that had been, uh, you know, there was a recording of my jump by the, basically I was holding onto the wing, letting go of the wing to make my jump. And the only other person in the plane was the pilot, also the owner of the drop zone. And so he was flying the plane and holding a video camera with a VHS tape for my jump. And so when I went home, I had this VHS tape and I popped it into the, into the player and I watched my first jump and I was just like, wow, that was amazing. Cool. And then when I hit eject, you know, the way the VHS player works is it would just suddenly turn on whatever was on the TV behind it at the time, which happened to be National Geographic. Huh. And it happened to be playing a show called Extreme huh. Tribes, which was about Shane McConkey and Miles Dasher and a couple others doing some ski base jumping up in the Arctic somewhere. And I was just like that, that's my tribe. Those exact specific people, I want to meet them and I want to jump with them. And that's the lifestyle I want. Uh -huh. So uh, yeah, I took a pretty big detour from that point. Wow. It, it, at that time, yeah, it wasn't like, it wasn't just about business. I, I, it was, it was like, this is the thing that I want to do. And how can I, how can I support that? How can I fund this lifestyle? Yeah. I, I remember watching some of the, I think it was the flight of the Frenchies yeah. was one of the, one of the videos. On yeah. YouTube, the Frenchies. Um, that I was so, I actually reached out to, to, to interview, um, a couple of them because I was so inspired by what they created yeah. there. Um, but I, I think what I'm, what I'm curious about, and I think listeners might be wondering as well is kind of the, the risk side of things. And, and I remember 
I actually remember reading the article when Dean Potter yeah. died a few years ago. This this kind of like famous climber um, had a wingsuit yeah. accident, and I've read that the the average like death is is one in every five hundred jumps someone dies, and to me those odds don't sound very appealing. And and I think I read on your on your website that you've done over three thousand, and, and so I'm like I'm curious about you know how has your relationship to that risk changed over the years. And, and have you had any close calls yourself? Yeah. I mean, first I'll, I'll speak to the statistic. It's really hard to pull statistics because we don't really know how many jumps people are making. And there's only a couple mm-hmm. of small regions where we can kind of collect some statistics. Like at Cherog, they have a pretty good log of the jumps that are occurring because there's a bus that takes people to the top and they track that or helicopter rides. And so they can mm. they can do statistics on those locations. Yeah, yeah. So it's hard to say if it's one in 500 or not, but that doesn't sound extremely far off. Um, I would say I've had about 1500 base jumps and 1500 skydives. So that 3000 jumps kind of spans both of them. So maybe 1500 in that risk category. Mm -hmm. And I've definitely had some close calls. Uh, and my, my relationship to risk has, has shifted a lot. Um, and I have, I have lost a number of friends. Dean, Dean was one of them. And, um, Mm. yeah, er early on, I, I do remember as I started, skydiving, I was just like, oh, skydiving is amazing. This is so much fun. And then there's a lot of, there a lot of culture that came with it where, you know, one of my instructors would say every day I wake up and I go to the drop zone, I think to myself, is today a good day to die? Uh, which sounds kind of morbid and it wouldn't, okay. I wouldn't expect the answer to ever be like, yeah, today's a great day to die. But it sort of gets you in the question of, you know, this is, this is what I'm doing. And if, am I doing what I really want? And am I doing it from a place of like mm. this being deeply what is calling me? Or if I, if I'm just in a pattern like, Oh, it's Sunday, it's time to go to the drop zone. You know, am, am I getting into a, a cycle or am I continuously in the wonder and checking in with myself? And then mm. I would say later on when I started base jumping, things got a little bit more serious. My, you know, my instructor, uh, sort <clears throat> of my, my mentor, um, there were less, less instructors at the time, more just kind of mentors. You'd find somebody who was going out and jumping in the middle of the night, you would drive them around for a while. And basically by being their kind of getaway driver, they would bring you closer and closer in and teach you to pack base jumping parachutes and teach you more about the equipment, teach you about analyzing the object and the winds. There's a, there's a lot more, uh, assessment that goes on for almost any base jump than for most skydives. There's some overlap in the opposite direction, but, mm-hmm. um, and so going through that process, there was, uh, my, my mentor at the time had me, and as he does for everybody, write a letter to, to your parents. Like if it, and he's like, if you die anytime in the rest of your life while I'm alive and I can send these things, I'm going to hold on to this letter and I'm going to mail it. So mm-hmm. this is you literally, literally mm-hmm. writing your death letter to your family right now. So. Uh, and so that was an interesting exercise. Uh, he still has that letter. He's mailed a number of them, uh, not mine. And I thought that was a really amazing exercise and something that was just very, very present for me in my, in my process of deciding to become a base jumper was just hearing everybody say, this is how it's going to go. You are going to get into the sport 
You will make some of the best friends you've ever had in your life. You're going to bond with them in ways you never knew you could bond with another human. And then you're going to lose them one by one. And you might be the one of the ones that's lost. And some part of me was like, mm. yeah, great. Sign me up. And another part of me was just like, holy shit. And I remember it's kind of laying in bed some nights wondering, you know, am I going to have a, you know, a catastrophic injury and my body's broken and there's no repairing it. And that's just me. What would happen then? What, what would I feel? What would I, what would still be there? What would I like? What, what opportunities would I still have? How would I, how would I live? And man, there's just so much, so much sitting with that, that it really did change me. And my, my very first base jump, my very first skydive, I would say changed me psychologically. Just there's a massive expansion in it. And also my very first base jump, uh, I, I walked away from that jump and I called my sister and I was just like, I'm different now. And I, I don't know how to describe it, but something really is different in me. And I love this and I'm going to keep doing it. And I'm going to try to be as safe as I reasonably can. And so I did. And then, yeah, that was the start. Mm. I'd say over, over time, my risk tolerance shifted. My understanding and perception of risk shifted. I started to see what some of the real risks were when, you know, early on, you, you, you would think that risks are certain things like parachute fails to open or what if you don't have a backup? Why don't you have a backup? There's certain things that until you, until you really understand the mechanics of it, it's like, oh, those things that you thought were dangerous are not that dangerous. Uh, and as you get deeper and deeper mm -hmm. into it, you start to recognize, oh, literally the, the most dangerous thing is my own pilot error, my, my psyche, my identity, anything that I have to mm. defend or prove that gets in the way of me seeing the reality as it is in the moment. Mm. Or my constriction <laughs> around fear. I can see yeah. how that relates. To... Pushing right, away right. feelings like anxiety. Wow. Yeah, there's the... yeah. Uh -huh. Yeah, there's there's so much that I've I got kind of chills listening to you listening to you share that and I, I I've I've had experiences surfing in kind of you know fifteen twenty foot waves where it's felt terrifying and it and it's felt like. Like my body is reacting as if this is something that could kill me. But in reality, I know that the odds are like pretty, pretty slim, I think. Um, but the idea, the idea of combining a sport like this with, um, I mean, I mean, it sounds like pretty intense exploration of your own mortality and how that it's almost like a forcing function for. Uh, appreciating the brevity of life every time you do one of these jumps. I think that's, that's incredibly powerful. And, and, and I'm wondering, um, I, I guess I'm wondering like how that stays fresh. And, and I, I did a, one, one of the more powerful letters I've written to myself was to, I wrote dear death. Mm. This was at the end of a, a vision quest experience and realizing as I was writing this letter that I had I'd never really acknowledged death. Like I didn't have a relationship with death. And this letter was, was in some ways like an apology and an invitation to come into relationship 
with death, which since I've, uh, I've, I've lost a loved one and, and, and I, I've experienced kind of death vicariously as well. And it's, it's changed me too. And I'm wondering for you, how has, how has that exploration like evolved or changed over the years as well? Mm. Yeah, a lot of ways. One one thing that comes to mind is that you know I, I I don't know what the full data is on this, and people talk about this in a lot of different ways, a lot of different unknown statistics. The farther you go back in history, the less you really know. But I do feel like we're living in a time where death is just not as present as it ever has been, and I think that our nervous systems are actually much more prepared to experience it than we think that we are. And so there's, there's something that felt about living a life where, you know, my friends and I could die at any time. And that was very real brought my, brought myself into presence in a way that, uh, is easily lost when I'm not living in that kind of a mode. Um, and so I, I I do think that there's there's something healthy about having having a close relationship with death, perhaps not about you know fetishizing it. Uh, um, there, and there definitely can be some of that going on. And you know some some people would say that someone attracted to base jumping has a death wish. I think sometimes there's some truth to that. It might also just be something innate in us that really feels unresolved around death and knows that bringing ourselves closer to it will mm. bring us into contact with what is unresolved so that we can, so that we can do mm -hmm. that work. And I think that was definitely true for me. Mm. There, there's definitely, I can't lie that there was some part of me that was somewhat attracted by the notion that I would live, live a life where I made a lot of really close friends and lost some of them. And I was scared of it mm. and also attracted to it sort of hero's journey type attraction. It's like I could live that kind of life and yeah. learn so much from it. And I could also hang out in an office and this is in the framing that I had not to say that living in an office, you can't live an amazing life because you can do amazing things from an office <laughs> and that doesn't have to like define you. But mm -hmm. in, in sort of the, the way that I related <laughs> to freedom and the way that I related to life at the time was I want to get out there and live it, even if I'm risking it. And there's something out there for me to learn and grow in by, by stepping out there and doing it. And there was definitely some identity. I wanted mm -hmm. to see myself as the one who was courageous. I wanted to see myself as the, you know, the outlier with all the, the balls of steel who could do the do the things that nobody else was willing to do and finally prove that I was some kind of badass. There was plenty of that going on. Yep. And I'm sure there still is. I, I still love to be like a little yeah. bit smug when I do something that's like, people are like, are you insane? And I'm like, yeah, totally. <laughs> Ain't it cool? Like whoever in that one. Yeah, that's, that's totally, that's totally yeah. a thing. Yeah. I, I used to get that same smugness of like going surfing when it was like minus five outside in these thick wetsuits and like the freezing cold. Um, and I, I, I was just thinking about how, like when you, when you drop into a wave, there's that moment of free fall where you're kind of like falling yeah. down the face. And I, I for me, I, I've thought about this before and it's, 
I wonder if the impulse tracks back to this like it's like deep part of my psyche that is seeking like self-annihilation is yeah. kind of what comes to mind. And and I wonder if that correlates with with the free fall, where it's like the impulse is is almost to um to to throw the self over a ledge, metaphorically and literally, um, to then experience that expansive connection and oneness, which I've definitely felt through surfing. And I would imagine you've experienced through I, I, I'm almost certain that you have through, yeah. through base jumping as well. And and it's, it's almost like, it's such a, it's such a healthy impulse of the self to find different ways to annihilate parts, yeah. you know, parts of itself. Absolutely. Um, does, does it resonates really, a lot. Resonate? And this is, this is something sort of the, the topic of a, there's a five minute ignite talk that I gave that maybe you could add to the show notes later called a base jumpers love affair with presence. Mm -hmm. And in it, I described my first jump mm. where, you know, I was at this, I was at this bridge in West Virginia. There's about a quarter million people packed on this bridge for this event. There's a couple of hundred base jumpers and we have eight hours to just session this bridge and just jump it and jump it and jump it as fast as we can. Um, and so my, my very first jump, I, what I thought I was going to be experiencing was just like the full rush, the adrenaline and you know, this big experience, which did happen, but the, the element of it that really caught me by surprise was just the, the presence that I felt the moment that I jumped, it's, it's as though my brain switched off and blue screened of death. That's a, like a computer term. Mm. I don't know if everybody gets that, but it's, I, it was like a reboot, like a hard reboot on my, on my mind. And it came back online with just firmware, like all it was, was just my direct sense of the world. Mm. And it was extremely salient and felt extremely, you know, important of course. And it was also outside of the, outside of the realm of anything that would fit through my cognitive experience. So my, my thinking mind had no relevance to this moment. And so I was just experiencing directly mm -hmm. and what I noticed and what, really stuck with me after that. And like in my phone call to my sister, like, I don't know what changed, but something changed was that when I was experiencing the world directly through my senses, it felt massive. It felt infinite. I felt infinite. The, there was a higher mm. resolution in the space around me. There was, you know, the, my vision was in HD. My senses were in HD and it was not the way that I, it was, it was categorically different from my normal waking experience of the world. Um, and so that's, that's something that over time I've come to recognize, Oh, we spend a lot of our time living in our heads, a lot of time living from memory, living from the idea of who we think we are and what we should be doing and what we think the world is. Uh, I think Jung called it the reality principle versus the like pleasure principle in some, some realms of psychology it's referred to as that, but, Another way of say, saying it is like the direct experiencing self and the autobiographical self. And never until that point had I mm -hmm. recalled, at least I know there were, there were clearly times that this occurred, but this is the first time that I really recognized the difference when I was just living from the directly from the experiencing self. And that's what, that's something that I became addicted to. It wasn't, it wasn't like an addiction to the adrenaline. It was a seeking of being in that experiencing self. And in my, you know, in my anxious, unaware of my anxious, 
walking on the ground self, I had no idea how to get back to that place without, without blasting through my cognition, my cognitive frameworks into reality by throwing myself off of things. That was the, that was the only way that I knew how to, how to do it <laughs> at the time. So yeah, very, very much resonance. Yeah. With what you're saying. I, I mean, what, what I'm, what I'm hearing is like, it sounds like you described something very similar to what meditation practitioners describe, describe as like, as like non-duality to a sense of like really yeah. perceiving or directly perceiving life in the world through the senses without the filter of the sense of self, the thoughts, the identity structures. Um, and so I'm, I imagine that it has, but I'm curious if that, if that experience of searching has led you through into meditation practice, psychedelics, like that realm as well. Cause those are the places where I've, I've had those experiences as well, either after plant medicine ceremonies or during particularly deep meditation retreats. Yeah, absolutely. Like that. And that ultimately base jumping did lead me to psychedelics. Psychedelics led me to more contemplative practices, all of those things combined with, and, and of course my intellectual frameworking mind staying active, wanted to understand all of this. So that's what ended up bringing me from from 15 years living overseas out of a suitcase to the Bay Area, where there seems to be this nexus of a lot of like the cutting edge of exploration in a lot of these different realms. Mm -hmm. And so I'd, I'd say that, yeah, initially I, through jumping, I discovered a doorway to presence that at that time, I don't, I don't think that when I was 18 or 19, if I sat down to meditate, the reason, the reason I didn't like probably one reason why I never did it at that time was because my mind was just so busy that I would I was not ready for it. It wouldn't have really. I, I don't know that it would have stuck. It it might have, but um, my, what I can say is that my mind was just incredibly active, and I was avoiding a lot of feelings. And uh, and so the the way mm. to puncture through that was just to have a really intense experience. And then later on, I was like, oh, there's these intense experiences that I can induce without jumping off of a cliff that are just taking seven grams of mushrooms. And then I was like, okay, here's another context where I can experience this. <laughs> and then I started to do other, other work and be like, whoa, actually, if I do a really deep, like somatic emotional release after doing a lot of self-inquiry and exploring my limiting beliefs, then I can find myself left in a state where I feel more directly connected to my experience. Or it might happen after yoga, you know, like to some small extent. And so I started to recognize that there's there's something that's always there. It's actually just, just under the surface is my, my direct experience is always there and it's always happening. And there might be just a cloud that seems to be obscuring it. And that cloud is my trying to figure it out. My trying to reflect on who I am. My trying to manage my image, all, all the stuff that would have me go into my head to avoid feeling something that's going on in my body that I some part of me is taught is not okay to feel or that I don't feel ready to feel. So yeah, over, over time, what I've, I I'm still seeking that, you know, that presence. I'm still, I wouldn't even say that I'm seeking so much. It's just like, I have, I find myself guided by presence and direct experience. And I'm learning a lot of different ways to, to remain in contact with that and recognize my contact with that in a broader area of my life, whether I'm, you know, doing a podcast or 
jumping off a cliff or doing my taxes. Mm-hmm. And really it's just, it's a, it's a form of just welcoming experience, mm-hmm. welcoming life, which right. is what base jumping was always about for me. It was just like, Hey, we're here for this life. Let's, let's be here for it. Let's do it. Right. I, I, I think what is, um, I mean, what things like meditation or surfing psychedelics, they've, <clears throat> they've almost given me a window into states of consciousness that are possible. It's, it's like showing me that there's a there there and then almost the, the journey or the, the adventure then maybe becomes spending more time in, in that place of presence, as you said, without, without needing to take seven grams of mushrooms or, or whatever it looks like. And, and I think this is a nice segue into another topic that I really wanted to talk about, which is uh, Joe Hudson. I think we both have a lot of mutual respect for his, his work and some of his principles. Um, and I'm curious, like, I, I would imagine that you've learned a lot from your guys' conversations on the podcast. Um, I think you've done like 70 something episodes at this point. Are there any are there any conversations with Joe that really reframed or, or gave you like a new perspective or lens to to view your hmm. own experience? Um, I mean, the first response is many, many, many ones. Um, as far as ones on the podcast, <laughs> yep, several, all of them. Yes, some of my most interesting conversations with Joe have been ones that weren't <laughs> for the podcast. You know, him and I having a business conversation, or me. Uh-huh uh, working like us working through something and just noticing that it's just those conversations tend to go differently than the way that I might have expected them from past experience in, you know, wherever my patterns were developed in my life. Uh, so there's like a lot of epiphany that kind of occurs there. Um, could, could you give an example of that at all? Does anything, anything, come yeah, to something mind? that comes to mind is like early on in my Early on in the process of like podcasting with Joe, I was really excited about like doing a podcast with Joe. This is amazing, and I I recall having bringing a conversation to him about something, and I was feeling like behind on things. I was like, "There's more that I should be doing." Was, I was in my sort of like in that world of like kind of self blame, and I remember saying something just to like to like kind of from my perspective is like vulnerably pointing out like this is a thing that I'm that I like this is some area where I'm behind and I'm getting it wrong. I know I see it. Um, and I just remember him completely not even believing it. And I was just like, really, you're not going to even play the game Hmm. that I didn't do something on time or whatever. Like it was whatever my story was. Um, (laughs) and and I I can't recall the, the specifics of the conversation. I just recall noticing that there's this like, Oh yeah. My, my story of me having been wrong is actually just my own story. Uh, <laughs> and that's, that doesn't, it doesn't invalidate the way I feel. Um, but it's also like, it opens up a crack and maybe there's another way for me to experience the way that I'm working right now. There might actually be, I'm doing fine. There might actually be, um, I, I am taking care of everything that needs to be done. Um, and so I guess that's that's sort of an example. One one thing that I will just say just in, in general about what really had me attracted to, to the art of accomplishment work and view vulnerability, impartiality, empathy, wonder as a modality is just that when mm-hmm. I encountered it, I just continuously had these reflections of like, oh yeah, 
throughout the throughout my entire life, when things were actually working really well, this is how I was relating to them. And when things weren't working well, I was relating to them in some other way. So it was it was it was like rather than learning something that's like here's a way of being to try on and see if it works for you, it felt like oh, these are actually pointers and recognitions back to uh back to back mm. to who I already am and when I have forgotten to be when I when I've when I've forgotten that this is who I am, then things start to go all kinds of different sideways. Early on, when we started having you know view conversations, I recalled a moment when I was in I was in Iran, and I was base jumping there with an Iranian base jumper uh, who has since passed, um, and he was he was looking for somebody to help show him the ropes. He wanted to make his first wingsuit base jump in his home country. And so I went with him there. And I remember that we had just done this jump out of a helicopter. It was the first time an American and Iranian were flying wingsuits together over Iran. And it was, there were a bunch of like news cameras and things there. And I was sort of like, this is interesting. I'm an American in Iran in 2014. Like there, at that time there was all this, um, all the international media around the nuclear deal and John Kerry and these negotiations. So I was just like, I could be like one misstep away from a like international incident right now. And then somebody comes up to me with his camera and he starts interviewing me. And I was like, well, he, he asked if I could, if I do an interview and I was like, yeah, I'll do an interview. And then he just started asking me these like very, very leading questions that were very religious in nature. Questions like, so if if a shepherd sees that his flock is doing something i don't know whatever unflock like if if the shepherd knows better shouldn't the shepherd control the flock and and i found myself in this uh -huh. weird triangulated <laughs> zone where i was like if i'm answering him the way that i would just like like to answer as that i would argue with him uh but if i argue with him that i might come off as atheist which is yeah. not uh, like that's technically a, an offense. I, I don't know to what extent it's an offense, possibly severe. If I'm like saying this in front of a camera that might get released in front of a bunch of people. So I was just like, Oh, I cannot argue with this guy, but also I don't want to agree with him because then this might be broadcast to the world. So I was, I was definitely like thinking about my image at the time and like what, what keeps me safe, but kind of being triangulated between those two places of like, if my parents are watching this, if John Kerry watches this, and if like the Iranian government officials who are allowing me to be in the country are watching this all at the same time, <laughs> like what is actually, and, and so yeah, not able to fit in any of the roles that any of them would want me to be. I found myself just in a roleless place of vulnerability, impartiality, empathy, wonder, which was, hmm. you know, I, I just got in the question with him and he would, he would say something that was very leading and I'd just be like, well, yeah, how does the shepherd know what's right? And, you know, like to, to that particular question, we rabbit holed a bunch for about 15 minutes. But I remember this being something where like, it, if I had, if I had to be a certain way, I would have, I, I don't know how the conversation would have gone. And there was a weird way by being like triangulated in place by all these different fears and allowing myself to feel them. Uh, I actually found myself in having just a really open mm. conversation with this person 
And I remember kind of hanging with that when I started, you know, that was many years ago. So when I started having, you know, view conversations with Joe Hudson's work, I was like, that's, that's really what this is. It's like, I, I'm not here with an agenda. I'm just here with you as a human and I'm curious and I'm in wonder. And I have, I have wisdom and truth to bring. And I'm not going to say that I know better than you or that you know better than me. And I'm also going to take care of myself. And I, I want you to take care of yourself. And what can, what can both of us get from being in this connection together? And how much can we enjoy it? And what, what comes of that? when we're not trying to change each other. Mm, wow, that's a powerful story. Um, I think I, I was actually in Tirana at a similar time really? as, as you. I was doing the Mongol Rally. Oh yeah, rally the Mongol Rally, Tirana. nice. I never did I one of those, but I wanted for, to. I, for, a couple of, for a couple of weeks, I ended up in Tirana and um, staying with the Norwegian embassy, I think kind of took me in for a, a week or two while things blew over. <laughs> but it was a very, I, I've, you know, I've never been to a country where um, everything felt so different. And, and, it, and it really it had me in this state of, of wonder that sometimes veered into fear, you know, hearing stories of how the secret police were kind of there all the time and the phone lines were tapped and were gunshots at night and things like that. But it was like, a, um, it, it affected me in quite a deep way. What I wanted to say to, I, I love that story. And it also feels like I, I know that viewers typically used in conversation, in relationship, but it, it sounds to me as if view would also be useful, you know, before mm -hmm. a base jump or before, um some some kind of wingsuit dive and being in that place and and maybe some of these um arenas are almost like that they're like forcing functions for getting into a place of view and like remembering that this is it's almost like your original nature without like extra stuff added on and would you say that view has helped you be a a better base jumper in, in any way. Yeah. I would say what, what view is for me is, I mean, one way that Joe describes it is like, it's a pointer to loving awareness. It's a way of being. And one way to, to break that down further mm -hmm. is loving mm -hmm. is like a deep welcoming, a deep welcoming awareness. And so from that, it's to the extent that I can be in a, an awareness that is deeply welcoming of reality as it is, including my own distortions and filters on reality yeah. and be aware of and loving of accepting of, you know, celebrating uh -huh. those, then that makes me the safest possible base jumper I can be. And that is a state of impartiality. It's like, I, if I climb for four hours and get to the top of a mountain and the wind isn't quite right, then I can, if, if I'm impartial, then changing my plan, changing my plan, whether it's mid flight or whether it's, pre-flight or uh or just being impartial with another jumper at the exit point if if this person is about to take risks that i that scare me then i can be impartial and say hey i don't want to be on this i don't want to make this jump with you i want to do separately like rather than jump together we'll jump separately or i'm going to walk down or hey i'm feeling I'm feeling fear on behalf of what's going on right now. And 
Like if the moment you get really partial in, the, in certain cases like that, and you try to change somebody be like, you're being dangerous, blah, blah, blah. Then you end up creating a whole new power dynamic and people get more rebellious, especially base jumpers <laughs> who love to be as a, <laughs> as, a, as a general like statistical like fact, like base jumpers tend to be relatively, uh, have tend to have sort of a f- freedom from authority kind of thing. Uh, or at least that's, that's how it was for me and many of mine when we were really in it. Uh, so, so yeah, like the vulnerability also that piece would be if one person at the exit, at the exit point says, Hey guys, you know what? I'm scared. I don't actually feel like this jump is within my capability right now. And I'd like to climb down. You know, that's the, that's saying the scary thing that's vulnerability. And they might be speaking to something that everybody in the group is thinking, but the first person who mentions it mm. mentions it might be the one that permissions the whole group to feel that. Mm. Could you speak a little bit more to the um, the fear side side of things? And earlier on, you mentioned that you kind of there was almost a sense of like smugness of you doing these like bold, courageous things, and I, I can definitely relate to that. I think there was like a part of me that. Um, particularly when I was younger, like wanted to prove to myself that I I could overcome fear, that I was fearless, that I was this courageous person. Mm. Um, but how would you say that your your relationship to fear has shifted? Yeah, yeah the, great question. Yeah, initially for myself, I also came from the perspective of fear is something to overcome. You know, no fear, fearless. Mm-hmm. Uh, fear is the mind killer. Um, yeah. Yeah. The and there's, there's truth yeah. I actually love that, uh, <laughs> that whole poem or passage. And there's also ways to the way, what I made it mean, what I made, what I made the, like what I made out of my relationship to fear initially was fear is something for me to overcome, to prove that I can beat fear. And if I conquer fear, then I'll be unstoppable and I can do anything. Mm-hmm. And that served me in a lot of ways. I did not get stopped by doing things that might've, I might've been too afraid to do because I learned to tamp down that fear and overcome it. And to the extent that I did that, I was also dampening really important signals. So to the extent that I was being fearless and conquering my fear, I was also a dangerous jumper and missing, missing certain key signals and sometimes relying more on luck than on preparation or skill. And so, yeah, a number of close calls later, a number of dead friends later, a lot of life experience later and introspection, my relationship with fear has shifted to fear is a beautiful, beautiful thing. Fear is something that calibrates our, calibrates our awareness and orients us towards what really matters. And it may be that the fear that comes up in us, you know, it's, it's conditioned based on our past experience. So it's not 100%, you know, logically accurate in any given sense, but when you feel it and you welcome it, you, it auto calibrates to your experience now. So for example, if I, what is a good example for this? Blanking on a really good example there of where 
the fear of not having a good example to but yeah one, one that i like to bring up sometimes is if if i'm at an exit point and i'm with a group of friends and these are people that let's say they are more experienced jumpers than me and they have better access to the really cool events and invites to and they know where some of the really secret locations are and i'm like really wanting to be you know to to jump with them and get to know them and be on par with them i want i want to be at their level and mm-hmm. i'm also feeling so it's, so there's so there's a fear of not getting that and then there's also a fear of will i be able to actually follow them on this jump are you know are are if i follow them am i going to get into a position where they are outflying me and I find myself behind terrain and I can't open my parachute anymore any longer. And I'm grazing the tops of the trees with no outs. And it would seem very illogical mm-hmm. for us to ever have that second fear be overridden by the fear of social, like, like disconnection or loss of opportunity. But often that's what ends up happening. So if I, the, the more that I actually feel what is going on with me, with myself. If I'm, if I'm not aware of that fear, then I won't know that it's controlling me and I will get myself into situations that are dangerous because one fear has overridden another. But if I, the, the more that I love and I welcome the fear, then in the moment I can be like, Oh yeah, that's what's going on right now. I feel really scared that I'm not going to impress these people. I feel really scared that I'm never going to be invited to the events that I want to get invited to. I'm really scared that I'm never going to get the sponsorship deal and I won't get what I want. And that has underneath that fear, there's heartbreak, the heartbreak of never really having often not having felt Mm. like I've really, you know, fulfilled my potential or lived up to my, my value or proven my worth or impressed my older brother or, and the more that I could sit with that, then the more that everything just releases. And then I can see clearly be like, oh yeah, you guys, you guys do that flight. You guys are advanced. You, you take that line. I'll take the more safe line and I'll meet you guys at the car and we'll enjoy beers together and connect and talk about our, the different experiences that we had. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's beautiful. That's really beautiful. Um, it seems like uh, to reflect back, like my experience of fear in those situations is is one of acknowledging it, but also I feel like there's a risk of of getting sucked into it. So it's almost like welcoming in the fear through the lens of loving awareness, like you shared, but from a more expanded perspective where it's it's there, but it's also not in control. And I think that's where people you know, maybe have this challenging relationship with fear where they feel like when it arises it like hijacks them and they no longer feel like they're able to to be themselves in certain ways so it it does and i also love that you you kind of shared it's it's like a signpost to some of the deeper parts of ourselves which may be hidden and following fear almost like following the breadcrumbs of fixes to these um more open experiences that um, you know, we might otherwise not have perceived, but it, it, it's such an interesting, yeah, emotion. Yeah, and then like, another <laughs> another piece of that is just that it's, it's not the only 
it's not the only part of us. It, and one, one thing you said is like the fear, this feeling that the fear hijacks me. Right. For me to have that sense, I have to see the fear as something separate that's coming in and hijacking me. And I find it's actually really interesting to flip that and be mm -hmm. like, mm. there may be like, whatever, whatever ideas that I have of myself and of the situation are provisional. And to some extent, they might actually be a hijacking. <laughs> My identity might have actually been hijacking my experience already. Mm. And the fear is actually <laughs> myself, more of myself showing up, more of my wisdom showing up and saying, hey, there's something else here. And so viewed from that perspective, it's not uh -huh. that fear is hijacking me. And if I if that fear comes up and all of a sudden I collapse into it, I'm just like, ah, I am the fear, then I might be missing some other entirely different <laughs> aspect of, oh, there's actually, there's hurt here or there's wanting here or there's yearning here. Or there's excitement here. Oftentimes, for for me, when the when I really allow the fear, it does transform into excitement, and that's one of the ways that I can tell. Sort of my my go no go signal for a jump is if my fear has transformed into mm. excitement, then that's a really good sign. If I still feel a bunch of fear and there's like I can't quite figure out what's going on, but I'm just just afraid then it, it might be that there's actually something, some wisdom in that fear that I haven't yet hmm. allowed in and seen. There might, there might be something wrong with my gear. There might be some, hmm. something that my identity isn't, you know, like if I'm from, from the place of like my identity as a wingsuit jumper that I'm not seeing about my capacities or my, even my desire on that particular day. If I'm, if I'm not really feeling up to making a jump that day, but, but by God, I'm the base jumper that does the jump, you know, then then there would be a conflict there. And if there, to the extent that there's dissonance in my system, then I notice like where, the more resistance I feel, the more that is a signal of there's either there's more to process before I make this jump, or maybe this isn't the jump to take today. And if I feel clear in it, then my body's charged. My I'm metabolically prepared to take the action and it feels like anticipation and excitement. And in that there's still a, a visceral sense of, mortality there's a visceral sense that yeah it could all be over in five seconds from now the moment i exit and also i do feel if i feel that capacity that trust in myself that that i'm able to operate within the parameters of this situation then i generally will feel pretty clean in my body that charge will feel uh enlivening rather than dysregulating and if there's something dysregulating in it, then there's something more for me to uh, mm. to feel into, to to notice. Yeah, that's it's really eloquently described. It, it it feels almost like either way, there's a lot of like charge. It's almost like the the body is plugged into like a thousand volt mm. battery, and there's charge running through. <clears throat> but it's like if there's expansiveness and openness, that's almost like the positive signal. And if there's contraction yeah. and it feels like for me it's like the energy gets stuck somewhere that's when it's like there's either something to feel or it's like intuition saying okay this yeah. is a terrible idea <laughs> like, yeah um, or, or i mean it's, it's both of those if 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 i'm not able to resolve the feeling if i'm not able to resolve the resistance and then sure and then i decide okay i'm not going to jump once i've made that decision oftentimes whoosh all of a sudden i feel the expansiveness i'm like oh that's how i know this was the right call or at least this, not to say that there was a right or wrong mm. call and that I could predict the future, but mm. this is the this is the decision my body clearly wanted to make. 
when it when the openness and the expansiveness happens. I, I love that. It, it's like a um, like a high stakes training arena for your own interoceptive yeah. capacities in a way it, it's like <laughs> where the yeah, stakes are definitely yeah. very high I, yeah I it's that. interesting in that um, in that way many of the things that i've learned through through joe or through other other forms of like self-exploration happened in in terms mm-hmm. of the body in very simple ways when i started when i learned to jump for example the very first time you jump, you are your body tends to be really stiff and rigid. And when you're stiff and rigid in the airflow, you end up doing what they call potato chipping. So your body flops back and forth, like if you dropped a potato chip and it's just flopping through the air. Mm. So immediately, the very first thing you're taught is relax. You want to arch, put your body in the right position and relax because ultimately you're flying through a turbulent airflow and you can't your body and your mind, like nothing can predict what's going to happen. So what you want to do is be able to flow with it and move with it and be like water. And so that was from skydive number one, a very important lesson for my body to learn that it's taken, you know, decades for that particular piece of wisdom to land in my the way that I relate to my emotions the way that I relate to my mind <laughs> and the way that I relate to business and the way that I relate to mm. relationships, all of it is like really just comes together in that one, yeah. that one piece of here's how you don't f- tumble out of the sky <laughs> that when you, when you jump, like here, here's just the very, <laughs> the very basic one-on-ones of how to fall through the sky gracefully teaches me everything else I ever <laughs> needed to know in life, essentially. Um, I just get to rediscover it in all these different yeah, ways. That, that's awesome. I, I had a really parallel mm-hmm. learning, learning to free dive, where if you tense up internally, it's impossible to equalize because the pressure becomes too intense. You just, you get right. like your head wants to explode. And so every five or 10 meters, there's this like internal checking in of like, where's the tension find it okay breathe into it relax soften and then equalize sink down five more meters ten more meters um and again that's also i'm I'm still in in the process of translating that into the territory above outside of the water um and and this is a a kind of a a segue to something i wanted to just mention here i was scrolling through twitter yesterday and i i saw someone posted a tweet that said facts over feelings don't let your emotions play Mm. with your intelligence and i think this is a pretty common perspective and this was from a a performance mindset coach um and and i'm curious like what would you say not maybe like what's wrong with this view but what's another perspective that you might offer um yeah well well, first i mean pretty much whatever we think are facts when we're making a decision in our lives are influenced by our feelings. So like you can hear anybody when they're in an interpersonal interpersonal disagreement with somebody, they're like, these are the facts X, Y, Z happened. And it's like, you you can just see how those, (laughs) the facts that they believe are true are shaped by the emotions underneath it. So, I mean, Mm -hmm. and this is, it's a, it's a good thing that we do this. It's not a problem because there's, there's so many different stories we could make out of any given moment. And so it, it makes sense that we would have 
like basically sort of the there's a there's a theory of constructed emotion that I really love by Lisa Feldman Barrett. There's this book called How Emotions Are Made. And sort of the the hierarchy there is that there's there's sensations that your body has, and then your emotions interpret those sensations. And then in in the those emotions set the the backdrop for your cognition for your for the the reality that you create. And then the reality that you create in your in your head can then mm-hmm. trigger your body. So if you if you create a reality where there's danger, you can trigger your body to be producing the like the metabolic preparation that if there's danger around that so then you have that stress mm-hmm. and you can have that stress loop. So your thoughts can trigger your body, can trigger your emotions, can trigger your thoughts, can trigger your body and have have yourself in in those loops. And so to say facts over feeling, it just doesn't seem possible. Um, hmm. yeah, that, I, I would, I would love to see that. I would love to see an example of that where that's actually 100% true, but I can't picture one. So hmm. it'd be like hmm. facts, facts and feel like feeling and ideas, feeling and data <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I think lisa talks about um emotions being sensations plus story or sensations plus context um, and that kind of goes back to what we were saying about fear where like maybe there's the sensation of like aliveness and energy and one context might be it's not safe and the other context might be yeah. uh this is amazing let's go <laughs> it's like they create different emotions even though the sensations themselves are actually um, somatically maybe identical. Ultimately there was something in my body that felt at least seen or relevant when I found myself in situations where physical annihilation was very close or imminent. So I feel like there, there was a part, there was a part of my psyche that came out and was like, Mm. okay, now things make sense because it's dangerous. And I think in some, to some level, Right. Base jumping was a way from me to bring myself into contact with that level of fear in my nervous system in a way that I had agency with and work through it. Mm. Uh, and because mm. otherwise, if I was sitting around my desk trying to do homework in third grade and I was not aware of how afraid I was and it didn't make any sense and I couldn't get anything done, but I wasn't doing my my work, so I wouldn't be allowed to go out to recess and all the other kids could. And then I started to have the story about how wrong I am, bad. And like, I just didn't have context for what was actually going on in my nervous system <laughs> or where it came from. And so without yeah. having to have yeah. actually intellectually understood that, huh. my body just had its own wisdom of like, hey, this is, this seems like this would be interesting to go do to work through some stuff. Uh, and it was, and it, it was that path in my life was very transformative and growthful. And also my poor mom had to watch it on Facebook for 15 years. (laughs) (laughs) Oh God. (laughs) I hope my mom's listening to this and she's, (laughs) I gave her a hard time when I was in my twenties as well. Um, Wow. And uh, there's something around in what you just said about joe talks about this idea of the golden algorithm and how life has this way maybe it's our subconscious who knows of bringing us into the perfect set of experiences so that we get to feel the thing that we've been kind of subconsciously avoiding and uh there was a 
I'm not sure if, if there's a question attached to this, but there was a retreat that I took part in recently that was around shadow work. And the the idea was to use kind of internal family systems and role play and creating scenes where these parts got to be kind of seen and experienced and like felt all the way through. And some of them were kind of just every day and others were like much more ex- extreme. Um, and it it does feel like that is, as you know, maybe what's happening behind the scenes the whole time where we think we have agency, we think we have control, but really there's just something pulling us into these experiences so that we get the chance to, to feel into or, or experience something that we were unable to previously. Um, and it sounds like, again, there's no question there, but that's just sound, it sounds like yeah. that's what's happening for you. As yeah. Well. Which has had me question, like, what is it? What is the me that I think has agency? You know, if I'm, if I, if I'm taking an action and I'm just like, <laughs> yeah, is this me that's taking this action? What is, what is the me that I think is doing this action? Is there some subconscious part of me that I'm not aware of that's really drawn to this action? Especially if I'm making, if I'm making a choice that seems confusing as to why I'm making this choice, then it's like, where, where is the line between what is me and what is like some larger form of me that I'm not even aware of? And if I'm not aware of it, do I really call it me? And on what level am I just operating out on like playing out some societal story that is on a collective level being being processed and experimented with in a population of mm. people. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that that just kind of brings me back to that like that common esoteric question of like who am I or what am I? the the decisions that i think i'm making it's very it's very interesting it's to just wonder is it, is it is it what i think i am that's making this decision <laughs> yeah uh-huh. yeah <laughs> yeah and, and and then there's i mean um i spent a week on a meditation retreat just kind of sitting with that question and attempting to come back to the place of of being the the one who is maybe in view like the the loving awareness and identifying with that or as that and seeing like you mentioned earlier everything else is like clouds and clouds in the blue sky um, which is is possible to do on a silent meditation retreat it's much more challenging when you're back in back in the world yeah or it might it might seem much more challenging Um, it also might just be happening automatically on levels that you're right uh-huh. <laughs> becoming more aware of over time yeah that's very true that's very true who is the one that, that thinks it's challenging yeah <laughs> uh um so I, I had like one more i guess one more question and, and then we'll we'll bring things to a close but we've been talking i mean for people listening who may are likely not full-time base jumpers um but but they might be curious as to how this this work this kind of exploring your own inner landscape has impacted you as a as a business owner and and i love that you're both working as a coach but you're also running a company and so you're kind of in the arena in in that regard so i I was wondering if you could give an example for perhaps like the way that you would have approached a certain challenge or problem let's say like 15 years ago versus how you might approach that today 
Hmm. Yeah, I guess was there. I could paint like a number of vignettes around what sort of examples might be. I would say that I, I used to be more concerned about image. Mm-hmm. Like people are going to care about what the company looks like, so build what the company looks like, and then from there, like get the clients and then deliver. And, I, and now I do it in a lot more of a reversed way. It's what are we mm-hmm. actually doing and what are we delivering on? And image is like yeah, it's it's best to it's good to put your best foot forward. And, you know, like cross your T's and dot your I's. And I'm, I'm less concerned about that now. I'm more concerned about the connections and the, uh, and the relationships involved. Um, something else mm-hmm. that's, that comes up is I used to feel far more responsible for everything that happened and responsible in sort of a self-blamey sense. Like, uh, like mm-hmm. I'm responsible for the careers of all of my employees. And if, if I were to have to let one go, or if we had to make any kind of difficult decision, it would be a sign that I had failed them. Uh, and it, that it, I had better, I had better sacrifice my own needs, maybe invest more money in the company to make sure that we can maintain headcount or do Basically, like I, I would put other people's needs before really actually caring for my own, uh, making sure my own core needs were met. Uh, so that's that's also something that's shifted, mm-hmm. and just rec- and and just also like recognizing how disempowering that is for me to for me to feel like I am actually responsible for anyone else's career, whether it's with my company or them going elsewhere, is there's a certain kind of like arrogance to that, uh, which I had and. I've, I've worked through much of, uh, there's probably some more there. I, I'd imagine that's also improved your relationships with your employees and the company. Cause I can imagine people listening being like, like, yeah, you should feel responsible. Like that's, that's how you build a good business. But I, I'd imagine it like making that shift has had a positive impact. Um, would you say that's true? Yeah. I mean, it has. And, and of course there's, the truth is that I am responsible for my experience. Uh, I'm, and as the, as a leader of a company, I am responsible for its performance. I'm responsible for its vision. I'm responsible for the things that are within my role. And as a CEO, I'm responsible that that other roles are one of one of my roles is to make sure that we have the company has what it needs, whether that is in terms of people, money, clients. And the places that I've gotten most tripped up are when I get into shame about how I'm not doing something. And that the company doesn't mm-hmm. have it because mm-hmm. of me. And mm-hmm. I'm like that's a whole, that's a place where I used to, like, I, I could spin out and people would just be like, Brett, like, no, just hire somebody for this role. You don't need to be like beating yourself up over that. <laughs> uh, so, so as, <laughs> as I've relaxed that a lot, like that has increased and improved the relationships, uh, with my team and people also see, they feel more seen and more empowered. That, that reminds me of a um, an episode that you did with Joe on the Upright Apology, which I'd absolutely recommend listeners uh, check out. I'll include it in the show notes. But that was a real, it was really helpful just to hear that distinction between apologizing from someone who's still collapsed in shame versus apologizing from um, your own like inner authority, I guess is, is one way to put it. Yeah. Yeah. And another way of kind of framing that into this conversation is 
you know, what if it's not my fault, but it's my responsibility, not responsibility from an obligation sense. But for me, if, mm-hmm. I, if I'm responsible mm-hmm. for my experience and getting, getting what I want from life and driving my business the way that I want to, and if everyone else is responsible for their experience in life, including my employees and, and my customers, if, if I can, to the extent that I can let go of the idea that I know better or should know better or should be responsible for in a, in, a, in an obligation sense, mm. then the more empowering it is for everybody around me. And it also, like what I then notice is that the emotions that move through me that I'm using to guide my, my decisions, and my actions are cleaner because I'm feeling myself. I'm not feeling the emotions that I'm projecting onto someone else and then avoiding that or doing some other kind of, Yeah. Yeah, that gets messy quickly. Yeah, yeah. and also just recognizing <laughs> um, you know, somebody else might have an emotion, and my me as you know, I grew up as the youngest in my family, and I learned to I learned to pay attention to other people's emotions. So I was I have a capacity to track what others are feeling, and something that has been important for me is learning to notice the difference between if I feel something in my body, is it that I'm actually just noticing what someone else is feeling, or is this actually mine? Mm. And so recognizing, recognizing what is mine and what is not mine in terms of what I'm feeling in my body has been really helpful. Mm. How do you, how do you do that? Hmm. Yeah, there's just, just paying attention to it and noticing over time. There's, there's a certain, there's a certain spaciousness. If I'm, if what I'm noticing is me as I feel it, there's, there's spaciousness in it. It's the same thing that we were talking about when there's, if, if I'm feeling contracted or if I'm feeling open and expansive, if what's coming up, if Mm. what's coming up is mine and I sit with it, it will move towards expansion. If it's, if it's not mine, it'll feel, and I, and I take it on, I'll feel more contracted. Yeah, that's. I mean, I've I've got tripped up with that many times as well. So I was genuinely curious how you how you approach that. Yeah, just as as I like a, develop a deeper relationship to my own my own groundedness in my body, then it just becomes more and more clear when something's not mine. Um. Yeah. So I'd love to begin to to wrap up by asking a few rapid fire questions. Yeah. Um, would that be right? All right. Rapid fire. All right. So question number one, what is something that you suspect is true, but have no proof for? Huh. Something that I suspect is true, but have no proof for. Okay. This is going to be bizarre, but I suspect Great. that when light orbits a black hole and interacts with itself, it computationally produces a universe. Great answer. (laughs) Question number two. What is one question or practice for self-exploration that you might share with our listeners? Hmm. Hmm. There's a number that come to mind and they all come from different places. So I'm like looking for one that just comes up in me right now. If I'm struggling or fighting something, 
and I ask, what is this, what is this fight doing for me? And what am I avoiding feeling? What would I have to feel if I wasn't in the fight? It's mm. a great segue to question number three, which is what is one decision that you're struggling with or wrestling with right now? Yeah, that is if any. To to have a kid or not have a kid. Uh my partner Alexa and my partner Alexa and I are both kind of back and forth on it, uh, hovering around the 50% mark in that decision. And it seems to be influenced by a lot of things, other, other life factors. So there's, there's a way that for me, it feels somewhat conditional, but it also, it feels like there's a, well, there is a very real time limit, at least in a statistical sense over the next several years. Um, and that, you know, changes. So yeah, that's a, that's a question that I'm sitting in a lot is whether that's what I want and where we are both in, whether that's what we want. Yeah. My, my partner and I are in the same, same inquiry. We've been going back and forth the last, last year or two as well. Mm. Big one. What is another common myth about our emotions or working with emotions that you, that you hear. There's a, there's a common thing that is like the notion that we are regulating our emotions, that we can manage or regulate them and that we're, it's our job to regulate our emotions and that regulating your emotions will lead to the life you want. And there's something about that that still just kind of points back to, for me, the idea that we are actually like, what is the we that is in control of that or thinks it's in control? And so, yeah, with the the way that I see that is my emotions are happening and, you know, it's I, I see my emotions as the sort of the bottom up continuous refactoring of my psyche. And ultimately, it doesn't need to be hmm. regulated it's actually my body's attempt at regulating my awareness. So yeah, rather than regulating emotions, I see it as how do I see through the ways that I, the the patterns that I've learned to try to regulate my emotions that have created all these different boundary conditions and edge cases that if I wasn't doing that, I would just have much cleaner, uh, a much like much more high bandwidth and fluid emotional experience. Mm. I feel like that could be a topic for a second podcast. Put <laughs> <laughs> a flag in that. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Um, and then fi- finally, what is what is your greatest aspiration for the work that you're currently doing? And, and maybe what is a, a ripple effect that you hope to have? Yeah, my greatest aspiration, honestly, it just keeps getting closer and closer to this. My greatest aspiration is just to be 
to be just deeply and enjoying loving everything that I'm doing. And in that, there's an aspiration of, I'd love millions of people to listen to the podcast and get a lot out of it. I'd love a bunch of people to come do the courses. Uh, I'm starting a company within the next couple of months that brings tech and coaching together in a really interesting way. Uh, there's a lot that there's a lot of ideas that I might have of what it looks like, but really I, I, I have no clue what my life is actually going to look like, but my, my deepest aspiration is just to be continuing to live and continuing and also deepening and coming into a deeper recognition. Actually, that's the better word. Like, cause I can't even pretend that I'm deepening my authenticity. I'm not doing it. What is actually occurring is natural processes are happening and as a result of those processes, I'm becoming more aware of my experience and that process feels really good in me. And that's what I'm excited to, to find out, to find out where that leads and also to let go of any desire to like know where that goes just to be in the moment with it. Hmm. Beautiful. Um, well, this has been, this has been so fun. Uh, like honestly, I've really, really enjoyed this. Um, where could listeners learn more about you, find you online, learn about AOA, the podcast, what's the best place to point people yeah. to? Yeah. Well, you can listen to Joe and myself on the art of accomplishment podcast available on all the podcast things. And you can also go to art slash podcast to read a little bit about us. My website is brett.kissler.life and the spelling for that will show up in your show notes, I'm sure. Uh, I have a software company called clearview.team and also you could add to your show notes my Ignite talk, uh, a base jumper's love affair with presence. Mm, that, that's cool. a brief five-minute talk that's on YouTube that people might enjoy. Yeah, and you can reach out to me through yeah, any, of those, awesome. any of those websites as I'd well. I'd love to watch that myself as well. What's that? Cool. And I, you think, I think you're on Twitter, you're on Twitter now. Yeah, I'm well, on Twitter so I'll, as I'll at Brett Kistler. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Perfect. Um, well, I'd love to close with this Rilke line. Uh, he said, try to love the questions themselves and live them now. Perhaps you will then gradually, without noticing it, live your way into the answer. And with that in mind, what is the question that is most alive in you right now? And what question might you leave our listeners with? Yeah, give me a moment to sit with that. Yeah, what of me has yet to fully contact the world? All right, Brett, thank you so much. It's been such yeah. a pleasure. Thank you. I enjoyed it. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. It would mean a lot to me if you could take a few seconds to open up your podcast app and give Curious Humans a shiny five-star rating. This not only helps more people to find it, 
but it will help me to get more awesome guests in the future. And if you're not already subscribed, then the Curious Humans newsletter is where I share monthly morsels of interestingness and podcast updates. You can sign up for that at johnny.life. That's J-O-N-N-Y dot life.